Maya, we're looking at the people of God as uh, they labor as exiles, even returned exiles to the promised land. And we'll hear first today about a man who had a passion to reach these very people uh, with the grace of God. Listen to the words of, of Nehemiah himself in chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Halakiah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and in shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, I'm going to open our new series today by, uh, if you'll indulge me, bragging on my wife. My wife, Elizabeth, is a wonderfully resourceful woman. For as long as we've been married, she's found the best deals around. Uh, she is a way better bargain uh, bargainer than I would ever be. And these past few years, she's been doing something that is really new that amazes me even more. She's learned the art of repurposing old things. Last summer was a great example of this for our family. Uh, one day I came home from work and I found these huge oak doors in our garage. I mean, these are massive doors. They're the kind you'd find in like a school or maybe an office place. Big, thick, heavy doors. And there were two or three of them sitting in our garage. And Elizabeth had apparently found them that day in her treasure hunting. And uh, the first thought that went through my head was... Why would she buy big doors like this? These things are so big, they can't even fit on our doors in our house. I mean, what's the use of having doors like this? Um, and so, uh, within a few days, Elizabeth was kind enough to let me know uh, how she, what she was going to do with the doors. She took power tools. That's right, fellas. My wife loves power tools. It's a beautiful thing. And she took these power tools and... And she cut the doors up in these odd shapes. It was kind of like a trapezoidal. It was really odd the way it looked. And, and I wasn't real sure what she was doing until she showed me. She was cutting them out to create new countertops for our kitchen. And I was like, wow, that's brilliant. Taking these old, beautiful doors and turning them into something that could be reused, repurposed even in our own house. That's the amazing part of, of what she did. But folks, that's exactly what the book of Nehemiah is all about today. Where God takes some old things that you think are pretty useless and you don't think they'll be use, uh, worthwhile for anything, and God repurposes them. Dare I say, even a people. And in the process, God uses a man. A man, Nehemiah, to repurpose, 
renew, reform, rebuild, and restore an entire city of God's people. And Nehemiah, you see, is all about God redoing everything to redeem a people who are in a dark and really lost place. In fact, I would submit to you that Nehemiah is all about that very prefix in English, re. Re this, re that, all the way through the entire Bible, where God sets something and makes it new again. Today in Nehemiah 1, we're going to look at Nehemiah and how God redirected, repurposed, if you will, Nehemiah in his future in one life-changing moment when he hears news about his, his own people. So for the next few minutes, we're going to think about five re's, R-E's, to consider in these first four verses of Nehemiah. So let's get started. First re. First re uh, is how this book recounts, recounts how Nehemiah, or rather who Nehemiah is. Look at verse one with me. It says this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, I think I got it right that time. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in the Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Now here's the first thing of three things that we learn about who Nehemiah is in this recounting from him. And the first is this. This book is the really the very words of Nehemiah himself. Most of the book, except for a few chapters, is autobiographical. It's, it's uh, full of a lot of I's and me's and ours and we's. And, and it's really a lot like uh, the implication being that Nehemiah is telling his story of how God worked in his life and the people's lives in uh, a series of events. It's a little bit, uh, just so you know, Nehemiah is supposed to go with Ezra. So in some ways we're doing this a little out of order, but Ezra and Nehemiah go together. Some commentators think that Ezra actually wrote the parts of Nehemiah that Nehemiah did, himself didn't do and incorporated Nehemiah's memoirs into this. But the long and the short of it is Nehemiah is really giving us his biography for a season of his life, much as you're going to go to the beach this summer or various and sundry places of vacation and maybe you'll read a biography while you're out and about on the beach. To be sure, Nehemiah's biography is more than just a story. It's history. It's history. And, and you, can know, you know it's history by the real specific ways that Nehemiah explains things in this text. I mean, look at that. He is the son of this certain man. Uh, he's talking about the month uh, of Chislev, the 20th year, Susa, the capital. He's talking about names, dates, places, people. And why do I bring this up as an important part of history? Well, very often people understand the Bible is just myth. Myth, that is, that it's telling a lot of nice stories that are meant to inspire us, much like chicken soup for the soul. But this is way more than myth. This isn't even close to myth. This is history. In fact, the Bible is full of these details throughout the scriptures as a way to tell us this isn't just an autobiography. This is an actual historic account of what happened to Nehemiah and his people and all the details that come throughout the scriptures are there for one major reason. It's as if they're crying out to all of us who are skeptics, and I'm one of those sometimes. Check the data. 
check the story, if it's true, if it's real. This isn't myth. This, is actu- this actually happened in time and space with God. Second thing we need to recount about Nehemiah was this. He was an exile. He was not living in his home, homeland, which was Judah, in what was formerly Israel. He was living away from home. And he was, in fact, living thousands of miles away in a place called Persia. That's where Susa was. Now, Persia is what we now call Iran. Now, how did, how did um, Nehemiah get to what is now Iran? Well, the short story is this. God's people fell into idolatry hundreds of years earlier. And in the process, God brought judgment upon them. After years of trying to woo them back to himself through the prophets, he brought judgment upon them by sending, of all people, the dirty, rotten Babylonians as an instrument of judgment to kick them out of the land, much as he had promised back in the Old Testament law. If you keep idolatry, if you keep sinning against me, you're going to get kicked out of the land. Well, after hundreds of years of warnings, God used the Babylonians to literally move God's people, the Judaites, out of their home. Now, let me explain how that works. Back in the ancient Near East, it was often when one superpower wanted to take over a nation and that nation was resistant, that they would finally crush them, just like they did in this case, uh, Judah. And what they would do is they would literally extract all of the important people, all the people who had power, who had influence and move them into various parts of their capitals or their nation uh, of the superpower. Then they would move their own people into the nation that they had conquered just so they could maintain peace and prosperity in their own superpower influence. In this case, Nehemiah had probably grown up in what is now Iran as a Jew. He had grown up there, and yet at the same time he had this heart for his homeland in Judea. Why do we bring up the idea of him being an exile? Well, here's the thing. The Bible says very clearly in the New Testament that you and I are exiles. This world is not our home. We do not belong here. But God has called us here to live our lives, because our home is ultimately heaven. That exile imagery is the exact same way we need to see ourselves. We are living away from our home. Now that brings us to the third part of the recounting of Nehemiah's story and who he is. It says further down in our text, look at verse 11 of chapter 1, that he says uh, of himself, I was Uh, cupbearer to the king. Apparently, um, Nehemiah was a cupbearer on the court of the most important man in the world at that time, a guy named Artaxerxes I. Artaxerxes was the king, the, the, the big kahuna over the Persian empire at that time. And as the king of Persia, he had a guy who was a cupbearer, in this case, Nehemiah, who would manage what he drank from and made sure it was not poisoned. Because in that time, 
You could be easily poisoned as a king in in the case of a coup or some kind of political backroom move going on. So, usually the cupbearer was a man whom the king really trusted. And the cupbearer, what he said, carried weight with the king. Now, what's that got to do with us and how does that apply? Well, look at it this way. Being a cupbearer in that time was a position of influence. He had the ear and trust of the most powerful man in the world. Now that goes to show us two applications. The first would be this. We as Christians, if God so calls us and allows us, need to be and actively serve in places of influence in our culture. City Hall, Town Hall here at Indian Trail, the the State House and Senate, Governor's Mansion, up into the House of Representatives. We need to be salt and light where God calls us to be involved in politics. And let me be clear, (laughs) we don't find our hope in politics just because we're involved. But we are called to be present and to influence. Second application that comes out of this is this. When God puts you and me in our vocations, in our jobs, do not think that your vocation is just to make a paycheck. Sometimes that's the way we function. I'm just making a living so I can have a lifestyle with my family. you got to move way beyond that. When God calls you to a vocation, He puts you in to influence in way more ways than you realize by you being present in your job. Your vocation is a place where God can use you as a part of the redemption of the world in the slow, steady ways we do it by doing our job well, treating people well in our workplaces, and making decisions with integrity. In those ways, we can be salt and light in our workplaces. Even when our workplaces are hard, Listen to the call of the New Testament to this very life in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 gives us a directive on living as exiles who are salt and light where we live, just like Nehemiah. It says, uh, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That's 1 Peter 2. You heard it earlier in Matthew 5. When Matthew says it this way, Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Like Nehemiah, your job, your vocation, even if you're a homemaker at home, is about way more than just getting the task done. It's about being a presence, God, if you will, a parable of Jesus Christ in the midst of a people who don't know him. That's what Nehemiah was doing in our text. So we've recounted Nehemiah's life. He, as an exile, a cupbearer with a larger purpose. Now let's look at another re of what God was doing through his life amidst uh, a people. And it shows up here in a report, a report, there's another re, about the broken people in the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse 2 with me. Hanani speak, uh, speaking, and, uh, and, he, and uh, he asked, uh, excuse me, Nehemiah asked them, these uh, men, concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile. And they said to me, 
the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So this guy named Hanani shows up in Susa after visiting Jerusalem with some other Jews. Maybe they were on business. Maybe they were officials, political officials. We don't really know for sure. But in any case, they were connected to Nehemiah. Hanani, likely his literal brother, or at least uh, a Jewish connection there in terms of brethren in the race. Nehemiah here's, is, finds these guys and is curious about how the people are doing in Judah. And he so cares about them, he asks them, what's going on back at home? Have you ever been there? Were you away from home for a season and you thought, I wonder how things at home are going? Well, that's exactly what Nehemiah was thinking, even though probably he had not been home in this case. Hanani reports a very sad account about the people and about the city. He says the people were in great trouble and in shame. Things weren't going well relationally, politically, economically. They were in a constant recession, depression, and they were in shame with their poverty and the oppression that was coming upon them from people who were taking advantage of them, such as political leaders or even business people. Not only that, the way he described the city itself, he described it as dilapidated. The walls of the city were broken down. The gates were destroyed by fire. You know what it looked a lot like? Have you seen pictures these days of like Detroit? Heard stories of how Detroit has just been abandoned. And the place looks like a sad case of a city that had fallen apart. Of special interest to Nehemiah was the wall in Jerusalem. Now, in the ancient Near East, a wall around a city was crucial, crucial for, for both peace and for economic prosperity, among other things. It kept enemies and thieves out. In short, the city and the people were in serious danger, ongoing danger. This was a life-changing piece of news for Nehemiah. And look at his response in verse 4. It's just really interesting. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Here's another re in our text today. Nehemiah reacts to the news in a very surprising way. He cries. He cries. Now, we American men, we read this like, what's up, man? Is he a big baby or something? I mean, we hear some bad news or some things going on. We typically get mad. Or we say, come on, let's do something. We got to do something about this. No, no. He does something very different. He weeps for the city. And he weeps for the city because this is what really the rhythm of the human heart is meant to do when hearing bad news. It's meant to lament. Lament is a forgotten piece of what we do in our living every day. We're used to kind of being told, well, get your emotions out and get on with it. But in those days... Lament was a rhythm of their lives. Lament being the tears, the sense that this is not the way it's supposed to be. 
the lament over the pain. And you've got to wonder, where do these tears come from? I mean, what's this about? Why is he crying for a place he's probably never visited and a people he's probably never met? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's love. Love. The love of God. Because this is the way God feels for his people when they are in a dark place and lost. When they are being even oppressed, beat down by life. God doesn't get mad. God weeps. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus himself, when he was looking upon Jerusalem, a very lost city in his time, knowing that there would be judgment to come upon them, how did he respond to them? Did he get angry? Nah, he wept for them. He lamented. This kind of mourning that he does in this text, this sitting down, this praying, this weeping, this says a lot about Nehemiah's heart for people. He grieves deeply because he loves deeply. There is a correlation in our lives. Indeed, he has been hearing this report about this broken people in a broken city And he knows that's not supposed to be there. And in fact, there's three main reasons that he is actually crying here. The first would be simply this. This city is not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be Jerusalem, of all places in the Old Testament, a city on a hill. We heard it earlier, this picture of a city on a hill. Imagine a city with lights at night sitting up on a hill that you can see for miles around. That is what the picture of God's people is supposed to be as lights in the world. Instead, through their sin and idolatry, their light had been squished, had been lowered. And he knew this is not the way it's supposed to be for God's people in the city. There's a second reason as well that he feels this way. And that second reason is this. He longs for more. He longs for more among the people. He knows if they're at this low place, they're supposed to be a whole lot more than they are. You felt that feeling, haven't you? For example, when you go to a Panthers game and they lose. Imagine a few years ago when their Panthers season was 2-14. and 14. If you went to any of the games or, or watched on TV, you thought, wow, this is depressing. This is not the way good football is supposed to look like. That's a a simple example, maybe even a shallow example. But just the taste of that gives you an idea that we all have a sense that a group of people are supposed to work a certain way. He had a sense that he wanted his people to be different. You know, a month ago, I had the privilege of meeting a family uh, of one of my daughter's good friends from NC State. I took... Bethany, rather, uh, up to Charlotte to drop her off so she'd get a ride back to state after Easter. And uh, I, I kid you not, I drive up into the driveway, and this family is from Armenia, Armenia, the, the country. And um, they come out, and they're very warm and greeting me and everything. And, and I kid you not, this also happened, too. Like, it's, it's, this is after Easter, and they apparently have a feast as Armenian Christians after, after uh, Easter, after uh, uh, their uh, fasting. And he says, hey, you must come inside. I just cooked lamb on a spit. You know, just like my big fat Greek wedding. You know, it was like that feeling. And, 
And, and so all of a sudden I said, okay, I'll come in. And I thought I'd come in and have a little bit of lamb with them and, and talk. Well, I ate, we ate for a few minutes, but we talked for hours. And you know what they told me about? They told me their story as a people. How as Armenians, they had been abused, run over. Even genocide had occurred in World War I with them on a large scale. How, how the, the grandmother, who was literally sitting across the table from me, she had grown up uh, in Armenia and had moved to Syria, ha- Syria, had to escape, and ended up growing up in Iran. All because her people had been oppressed and pushed out. And as they told the story, you could hear the pain in their voice. You could hear it. That's what Nehemiah hears and feels. And that same pain that comes out of your voice and my voice when God's people hurt is the one that God leans into in real lament. So God, and two reasons that, rather, excuse me, Nehemiah is, uh, is lamenting here, and that's just not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a city on a hill, but there's one third reason that we have to visit. And it's one that we don't think about often with the people of God, but is a very case. Nehemiah felt the pain of the people's idolatry and sin in the past. He remembered how the people of God got there to this broken-down city with a broken-down people. It was a sordid story. A thousand years before Nehemiah, Moses had uh, taken the people of God out of Egypt. God used Moses to lead them out of Egypt and in the process had crushed the superpower of the time, Egypt. And in the process of doing that with supernatural works, they cross the Red Sea. God starts taking care of them. In the middle of a desert, a million of them, they start complaining. Not only do they start complaining, but while Moses is getting the law up on a mountain, they build an idol, the golden calf, and they start worshiping it. God is incensed by this and is ready to judge them right on the spot. Indeed, he goes on to judge them, but not without Moses interceding for them and coming to their aid. And as a result, God indeed judged them in temporal ways, but he forgave them through the intercession of Moses. Decades later, God brings Israel into the promised land with Joshua conquering the land. The people start to settle and they start enjoying the blessings that God gives to them. I mean, just crazy blessings of of milk and honey. But as they're enjoying the blessings, they fall in love with the blessings more than the God who provided the blessings. They fall in love with the prosperity and idolatry. God judges them again, this time by unleashing the nations against them, pushing back. They cry out to God. And as we know in the book of Judges... God raises up judges, other savior figures to deliver them. And then God gives them uh, a series of kings after this. Kings who are both glorious, like, say, a David, but very broken, say, a Solomon. Yes, and even David himself. The people prosper, the nation grows, they win battles, but they fall into the same rhythm of idolatry and sin. It's the same thing again and again. 
God sends prophets. He brings temporal judgments on them. He warns them for decades, hundreds of years. Stop turning to the idols. Look to me. (laughs) They don't listen. In the northern kingdom, in 1722, God finally unleashes the Assyrians, the superpower of that time. And they kick the northern, uh, 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 the northern kingdom of Israel out of the nation. That's what God does with them. You'd think the southern kingdom of, of Judah would learn from this, but no, 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 not them. They do the same thing, except theirs is less formal idolatry, like with real idols. Theirs is something different. They trust in politics. And as a result, over time, trying to make their way with political alliances instead of trusting the one true God, God kicks them out of the land. 586 B.C., he destroys Jerusalem and the temple, or rather the Babylonians do so, at God's uh, decree. Nehemiah knew that his people were living with the consequences of their sin. And you know how he responds? He repents. You see that fasting and praying in our text? That's the classic posture for repentance in the Old Testament. Mourning is how you respond to sin in a people, particularly God's people. James 4 says it this way about mourning and repentance. Listen to James 4. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord. He will lift you up. So here's the application. When you and I hear of sin and darkness in the world, do we go to glee that, oh yeah, they're finally getting it? That's what the media does in our time. Or do we go to tears? How long, O Lord? Do we lament and even ourselves look at ourselves and say, what are we bringing to the table in this? You know what happens in a in a culture where morals are taken away, don't you? It becomes more moralistic. Now there are new standards to judge each other by. Because everybody's got it in our hearts to judge. But here is a different way. The way of grief over sin. Let me ask you something. Should we stay in mourning as a people when we see sin in our world, our culture, even the church? Nope. We do have hope. Jesus himself said this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is the comfort that Nehemiah takes in our text? Well, it comes in that last little phrase in verse 4. That last little phrase that describes God himself, the God of heaven. That phrase describing God, the God of heaven, shows up in Ezra and Nehemiah 12 times. And you know why? Because it describes the transcendent God who is over all. Who is bigger than everything that happens and sometimes feels so intense it's right up in our face. This God of heaven is sovereign over it. He's in control of all that occurs. Yes, even the dark stuff and the sin that we bring to the table and other people bring. And he is so powerful and so mighty 
that he's weaving it together in a story. A story of redemption for you and for me. This is the hope and the comfort that Nehemiah takes in our text today. That the God of heaven controls all there is and is sending it somewhere in a grand story of his glory. He prays to the God of heaven because the God of heaven has a purpose for everything. Now, someone may ask, well, what about the hard stuff? What about the hard stuff, Dean? I mean, what do you do with all the suffering and the dark things? And I'll tell you, my quick answer is, I don't know. Sometimes tragedy happens, and we have no clue what God is allowing, why it's, why it's happening, what's going on, even in the evil of men that are involved. But I can tell you this, Jesus put an interesting twist on this language, the God of heaven, in the Lord's Prayer. When he said, our Father in heaven. In other words, God is not just the grand transcendent Lord. He is also the eminent close Lord who wants to be interested in you and me. In us personally. Our God is a personal God. A relating God who is in control of all things and wants to be in our lives. That's the God and Father who is in heaven. And our hope is that this God who has this master plan and is redeeming along the way, involved in our lives, will bring it to a great conclusion. Restoration. That's what we're going to see in our text as we go through Nehemiah. We all have this longing for things to be the way they're supposed to be. That's restoration. And God is taking it there, even in our lives to this day. God is able to re-everything. Renew. Restore. Revive. Replace. Redeem you and me. So we recounted Nehemiah's life. We've considered a report of a broken people in a city, and we've looked at his reaction to the news of all this. So what? What difference does it make to you and me today? Well, when you look at the book of Nehemiah, you're going to find that first God repurposes Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah, the cupbearer, will become Nehemiah, the governor. He calls him to a different call. And he will go to his people and rebuild the wall. He will reform the people and make them a holy city full of holy people. That's what the church is meant to be. And God does it through this cupbearer. You know what's, what's applicable to you and me with that? Remember, the cupbearer's job was to look out for danger. To look out for danger for the king. But what God did is took that longing to protect from danger and move it into an entire city, rebuilding a wall. Nehemiah was changed in his core value to the location of how he used it. 
Jesus did the same thing with Peter, remember? Peter the fisherman, he said, I will make you a fisher of men. That's what God does in our lives, is in his providence, he not only calls us with our passions, our gifts, our abilities, our extraordinary things that we can do, but he says, look to something bigger in how you can use it, the kingdom of God, not just for your own self-interest. Next, God not only repurposes Nehemiah's life and call, but he restores life to a city. The story of Nehemiah is our story. And who is our Nehemiah? Is it Dean Faulkner? No, it's not me. Is it the elders of our church? Nope. A particularly talented leader here. Uh Uh-uh. Christ is our Nehemiah. Rebuilding us and restoring us in our relationships, how we do life together, how we do life with him, even how we live out our careers in community. Jesus is changing all of that in us together. Our call is to follow him, to know him, And to do his will. And the reason why we have hope about this. That if we follow him and carry out his will. He will resurrect. Through the power of God. Another re. Everything we do one day. And give it eternal significance. When you think something is dead. Never forget that God makes dead things live. That might even be your marriage in some case, your relationship with the Lord. It might be your career. It might be a whole host of things you bring to the table today. You say, that's dead. I feel dead. Well, I got great news for you. God makes dead things live. And the resurrection of Christ is our great hope that he'll take it somewhere. In conclusion, many of you have seen uh, when you work uh, in like warehouses, you see things like wood pallets on the floor that carry big boxes and things like that. And uh, you got to wonder, what happens to wood pallets whenever they are broken or go bad? Well, what, what companies did for years is they paid people to come in, take them, and just get rid of them. Uh, because they were basically useless after they had broken down. They would often burn them up. That's what they would do. Well, Big City Forest Company in the Bronx of New York came up with another idea. They took the junk of pallets and they turned it into treasure. They would find that in these pallets are hardwoods like rosewood, cherry, oak, even mahogany. And Big City Forest would dismantle the pallets They'd salvage the wood and they'd use it for things like flooring and, yes, even furniture. What once was sold at, I think, $30 a load to be burned up as wood chips then became something that would be $6,000 for a ton of well-handled wood. If that's what can be done with wood, how much more can be done with us? Wherever you are with God today, remember this. They say that one man's junk is another man's treasure.
But in the kingdom of God, one man's brokenness is the repurposing of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray today that as we go through this book, you would help us as your people to listen. Start with me. Repurpose my life. And we pray that you would help us to see the grander purposes you've called to in this world, the purposes of your kingdom, in your church, even in our vocations, wherever that is. Awaken our hearts to the wonders of how you are able to re-everything. Make things new with your power. We want to learn that as a people this summer. Speak to us, Lord. Speak in a way that we will taste Christ and his love. It's in him we pray. Amen. Please stand if you're able.